0: When a war is forgotten, the problems don't go away, they grow. In Syria, there's been hardly any reconstruction to crumbling infrastructure, and now a cholera outbreak is threatening the whole region. At the same time, the ways in which the world has adapted to the Syrian government's survival are coming into the spotlight. The United Nations has been accused of corruption in Syria, this time at the World Health Organization.
1: Corruption, misuse of funds, carrying favours and paying and providing projects to regime actors themselves. They are hiring the people who are killing us at the UN to deal with us.
0: And Syria's neighbours are starting to re-engage with leader Bashar al-Assad. So what does all this mean for the Syrian people? I'm Hala Mohyeddin, and this is The Take. We're talking today to three people about the lay of the land in Syria, and it's fragmented. Assad has regained much of the military control, and controls around 70% of the population. And he's starting to regain some footing diplomatically. That's as the humanitarian situation is growing more urgent, even while the international response is under criticism. I heard first from Al Jazeera correspondent Zena Khadr, who's been covering Syria for years. Let's start with the situation on the ground in Syria. The cholera outbreak is getting worse and it's even spread next door to Lebanon. How did it start in the first place?
2: Yes, it is a, a serious health emergency. The United Nations is warning that the outbreak could be catastrophic, threatening the lives of many, many people. It was first detected in the northern city of Aleppo back in August, and it has since spread across the country. We're talking about thousands of cases and dozens of deaths already. This is Ahmed al Mohammed in the
0: eastern province of Deir ez-Zor.
2: I've suffered from diarrhea, vomiting, and a lot of pain. I don't have any strength left. I can't walk. I have no strength. I've lost a lot of energy. The water is polluted. We drink straight from the Euphrates River. There are no services at all. As we know, cholera spreads where there is no clean water. And two-thirds of Syria's water treatment plants have been damaged by the war. The UN says
0: the war has caused extensive damage to water pipes and more than half the healthcare facilities
3: aren't
2: functioning. It has reached across the country. All the governorates there have been reported cases and people are afraid because this is treatable, but much of the health sector has been destroyed by war, and so International organisations have stepped in. They're trying to provide as much help as possible to be able to contain it. But like you said, it has already spread to Lebanon.
0: We'll hear more from Zaina later in the episode. But to understand the threats to public health in Syria, we reached out to journalist Maria Chung.
3: I'm the medical reporter for the Associated Press, based in London.
0: The most immediate problem is that there's a shortage of cholera vaccine. So much so that the WHO recently announced it was changing its two-dose recommendation down to one. Here's Dr Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, the WHO Director-General.
1: The one-dose strategy has proven effective in previous outbreaks, although evidence on how long protection lasts is limited.
0: Years ago, one of the two vaccine suppliers announced it was going to shut down production. But now that shutdown is playing out at the same time as a global surge in cholera, fueled by extreme weather and floods. Maria explained the fallout.
3: It was an Indian subsidiary of Sanofi Pasteur. You know, there's been a lot of speculation that they are likely shutting down because this is not a profitable space in the market for them. And certainly... You know, the global market for cholera vaccines is going to be countries that don't have good water sanitation. These are not countries that typically have a lot of money to spend, and it's donors like UNICEF, Red Cross, WHO that buy the cholera vaccines for you know global use. so it's it's not going to be a profit making operation for them.
0: Another problem is trust in the World Health Organization itself. Maria led an AP investigation focusing on Syria that just published some of the most detailed evidence to date of the agency's alleged corruption.
3: Based on more than 100 confidential emails, documents, recordings, other materials from WHO staffers in Syria, who over the past year have expressed grave concerns to WHO about potential misconduct of the director of the Syria office, including misappropriation of funds, abuse of conduct, and things like buying inappropriate gifts for Syrian government officials. They were concerned because this is an office, obviously, that serves a population that is in dire need of humanitarian aid, and the office has a budget of about $150 million.
0: WHO is part of the United Nations, and it's funded largely by donor countries. In Syria, the WHO representative is a doctor named Akjamal Maktimova. Here she is speaking in a promotional video in March.
2: The huge proportion
0: of WHO's work is supply of uh, humanitarian health supplies, equipment, reagents. And this is especially true in humanitarian emergencies.
3: She's been at the WHO for a long time. She's originally from Turkmenistan. She's a gynecologist by training. And she's held several WHO roles.
0: Magde Mova joined WHO Syria in May 2020.
3: So at a very critical time during COVID-19.
0: The first allegation against her that caught Maria's attention was back in 2021.
3: People started telling me about this party that was held at Four Seasons in Damascus. First of all, I, it kind of raised my attention because this was April 2021 and if you think back it's a time when many countries had very strict Covid restrictions in place. No social gatherings, you know always be masks and things like that.
0: So this $11,000 party at a luxury hotel paid for by WHO was news to Maria. She heard from her sources that the party was ostensibly for health workers
3: But I was told that it focused really on this award that she herself had been given.
0: The hotel itself is another problem because of its owner's relationship to the Assad government.
3: Most of the UN staff stays there because it is one of the only safe places to stay, the UN says. Um, You know, Syria obviously being a conflict area. But the ownership of that hotel has come into question because... It is a corporation that's allied with President Bashar assad So the US and the EU and other countries have leveled sanctions against this, this group that owns a hotel. And they were concerned about it, not only because of that, but because of the cost. Obviously, Syria is a place where more than 90% of the population lives in poverty.
0: What Maria heard was that Dr. Magdimova was spending a lot of WHO money on hotel accommodation
3: a suite. Which was more than four times what other staff were, were staying in. Whether or not that's justifiable, that, that's up to the UN and donor countries to decide. Um, but it is something that was raised repeatedly by staff, that this was potentially a misuse of funds.
0: Maria's investigation also found concerns from staffers. Not only that Dr. Muktimova may personally be benefiting but also that the Syrian government was benefiting from WHO resources as well.
3: There were concerns that WHO was allied a bit too closely with the Syrian government. WHO has been continually criticised for this. I mean, it's difficult for any agency to operate in in a conflict-ridden area.
0: Often international agencies have to work more closely with authoritarian governments than might be preferable, in order to get access to people in harm's way. And in Syria, it's been a big problem. UN officials have accused the Syrian government of using aid as a weapon of war. But the problems can also be internal.
3: The concerns we heard from staffers were that she pressured WHO staff to hire the relatives of high-ranking Syrian officials. There were complaints from several people that she met secretly with the Russian government, including the military, and that those meetings were kept off her official agenda for reasons that we don't know, and that they had pressure to sign contracts for certain things, including fuel, for example, with people allied with the Syrian government or who are highly placed in the Syrian government. The
0: allegations were serious enough that Maria says the WHO has undertaken one of its largest internal investigations in years. We asked WHO about these allegations, and a spokesman told us they take them extremely seriously, but could not comment further on the details because their internal investigation is still ongoing. For Syrians, however, All of this corruption at the WHO doesn't look like anything new.
1: My name is Bassam Barabendi. I'm a former Syrian diplomat. I'm living now in Washington, D.C.
0: You heard him at the start of the episode, talking about the UN.
1: As a diplomat, I worked something like 20 years with the Syrian government. I worked in the UN, then to the Syrian embassy to China, then to D.C.
0: And Bassam's opinion, based on his years of observation is that the UN system allowed this to happen.
1: There's no transparency. They always think that if there's a corrupt system, we have to work with the corruption in order to achieve our mission.
0: One way this plays out, he says, is through the Syrian government's control of access to the country. They control the visas.
1: The regime don't issue visas for the people to come to Syria if they don't fit its own narrative. If you get someone with history of transparent, clean, blah, 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 there's no way to get the visa. And the UN high level in New York, we, we always tell them this. So they always need some scandals to say, wow, that's, that's sad. But everybody knows the situation.
0: But Bassam does still think this new investigation has broken ground because of the information from inside WHO.
1: They make this difference is that it has more legal evidence from inside to say we are corrupted.
0: For Maria, the reporter who led the AP investigation, the question now is if WHO will be held to account or risk facing further loss of trust.
3: WHO is a critically important public health institution. We depend on this agency to lead the response to global health crises. And there have been repeated instances of serious allegations of misconduct in various offices. And it's unclear whether or not they have prompted real change at WHO. As we noted in the Syria story, Dr. Magtimova remains in place. She is officially still the Syria representative. She is still being paid a director level salary. So there are serious concerns about how accountable WHO is.
0: One effect of health crises like cholera is that they draw the international community in further with the Syrian government. From industrial-scale torture and detention to starvation as a weapon of war, the Syrian government's abuses are well known. But the WHO isn't the only one facing criticism. That's after the break.
1: Hello, I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. In season four, we carry on exploring the lives of history's most notable figures, from Rosa Parks to Pol Pot. We meet the people who changed the way we think about our world, and those who left it marked by their infamy. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: More and more, dealing directly with the Syrian government is on the rise, as Syria's neighbours face a future with Assad in it. To hear more about how Syria's foreign relations are changing, we need a quick recap of what they've been. The Syrian government is backed in large parts by Iran and Russia, while Arab countries have been split. And Al Jazeera's Zain al says to understand Syria's future, you need to understand which countries have a say in its fate.
2: This is a country where there's more than one foreign army. What, you're talking about the Iranians, the Russians, the Americans, the Turks. And they're going to have to decide the, the end game. And right now, it's not a priority. The balance of power is going to have to change one way or another for something to move. At the same time, there has been some
0: movement diplomatically. Can you tell me about the Palestinian group Hamas?
1: Hamas delegation is visiting Syria today for the first time in 10 years. They made an official
0: visit to Damascus last week. And before 2012, Hamas had made its main
2: political base there. So that's quite a big deal, isn't it? Well, Assad, the Syrian president, he's been gradually restoring relations with with some Arab countries as of late. There's like this growing sense, if you like, that the regime has prevailed. And the latest reconciliation is with them. Just so I'm clear, so why is Hamas
0: doing a U-turn? <laughs> What's prompted Hamas's change of position?
2: I mean, Iran played a big role here. Iran being the closest ally to the Syrian president. Of course, there's also Russia. But Iran and its local ally here in Lebanon has as well. They played a role you know, in their view, Hamas should belong in the quote-unquote or what they call the axis of resistance against Israel. So this was um, a move by Iran, if you like, to show that their camp is strong and more players are joining their camp.
0: As for the Arab countries, the one at the forefront of bringing Assad back into the fold is the United Arab Emirates. The UAE is part of a regional Cold War with Iran, so engaging with Assad is a great way for them to try to counter Iran's influence.
2: The UAE was among the first Arab countries to restore diplomatic relations with Syria. It was a few years back, but the UAE foreign minister visited Damascus and was greeted by the Syrian president, and then the Syrian president later travelling to the UAE. That was back in March. The visit sends a signal that the Arab world is now willing to re-engage with Syria's once widely shunned president. The first country he visited, I side, of course, Russia and Iran, uh, during the course of the war. It's really, for the regime, it's a battle now for credibility and legitimacy. It's been shunned by much of the world because of its brutal crackdown. And in fact, that's why it even lost its membership in the Arab League.
0: Syria's membership was suspended back in 2011. But some countries are pushing for it to be reinstated.
2: The Arab League is going to hold their annual summit in a few days. And it's just such a polarized region that they don't agree on anything. And this comes within that. Where does all the politics of
0: this leave the people who are suffering from cholera or the refugees that neighboring countries want to return home sooner rather than later?
2: Vulnerable, alone. I mean, yeah, you speak refugees. I mean, here in Lebanon, they're just not welcome. And the situation is similar in Turkey. Uh, The government uses them as some sort of a, a scapegoat for their failures here in Lebanon.
0: Just on Wednesday, hundreds of Syrian refugees returned home from Lebanon. It was the first official repatriation since the pandemic began.
2: And that has people worried. A lot of people here, Syrians are from Homs or the Damascus countryside areas, which were the epicenter of the rebellion against the regime. So these people are not welcome back. So they're worried and they feel that the international community has abandoned them. And that's the way they felt for years. You know, they feel that if the international community stood by their side, they would have won the war a long, long time ago. So right now they're concerned and uh, they're weak. They're just waiting just to see if they are going to be forced back. But it's unlikely to happen because at the end of the day, Lebanon relies on support from the international community. It's not just going to put tens of thousands of refugees and push them back to Syria. It's not going to happen that way. Is Syria a safe country to return them to? No, it's not. It's, uh, there are no security guarantees there have been many cases and documentation of people who have returned, uh, going back to you know, prison. I'll just give you one example. Zaina
0: mentioned a boat that capsized off the coast of Syria on September 23rd. More than 100 people died.
2: There were a few survivors when that boat capsized, right? Some of them were Syrians. They never returned home. And their families are asking, where are they? These are survivors from a boat that sunk off the coast of Syria. They were found, taken to hospital, and now they have disappeared.
0: How awful. You've been covering all this for so long, Zane, and we always ask you this, but does it feel like a new chapter in the stalemate? No,
2: not yet. In other wars, let's say, there could be some sort of a peace treaty or a political settlement and people move on. I'm not sure about Syria. I'm not sure that people can actually live together again. There has been so much demographic changes on the ground. People, the movement of people from one area to another, the movement of communities, whether they are religious communities. The divide is just so deep. I just, it's very hard to see what kind of an end game when you have these different groups unable to even, you know, sit on the same table and never mind live side by side. And that's The Take.
0: This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Chloe Kay Lee, Amy Walters, Ashish Malhotra, Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, and me, Hala Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El Malik and Adam Abogad are our engagement producers. And Ney
2: Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.